There's an observation that the German philosopher and theologian Robert Spayman in his work Persons makes that I want us to hold in all of our minds as we read this text. And it's this, that in order to know a person, someone has to invest himself in the encounter with that person. It's not enough to be a bystander. And that the more personally we invest ourselves in anything, the more we know about it. This passage is about to reveal how much Jesus knows about everything, including us and the other people mentioned. And it happens through giving himself to us, investing himself and knowing each person in this text. Now with that, will you please stand for the reading of God's word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In our brief time that we have together this afternoon, we're going to take a look at this in uh, three chunks, and we're going to see how Jesus knows each and every person and each and every person in this text in the three chunks. And the first you'll see is the preparation for the meal, then we'll see the Passover conversation, and then the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. And so for this, it's really easy actually to skip ahead to the institution, but I want to focus your attention especially on verse 18. And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. I have to confess to you that this verse nearly undid me because who is this man? What is his name? The text says, and Mr. So-and-so, this anonymous feature who's going to have this prominent role in Jesus's final meal. And it's actually really interesting because it's different from Mark and Luke, how this is mentioned. This specific man is actually defined as a servant, and he's defined as a servant that the disciples would be able to identify by one feature, and that, would, that is he'd be carrying a big jar, big jar of water. That would be unusual because men did not usually care, big, carry big jars of water. And they were to go up to him, and they were to say, our teacher says the time is at hand, and now it's time for Passover. 
And he was going to show them to his master's house, and there was going to be an upper room fully furnished and prepared. And my question is, and commentators have wrestled with this, how did the guy know? How did Jesus know who that guy was? Did Jesus in his supernatural power just automatically know? Did he, when I imagine Jesus' supernatural power, I imagine him putting on some sort of Tom Clancy infrared glasses and seeing afar this other person and what they're doing far away. And I know it's not like that, but how did he know that the guy would be standing there with the jar? And that would align actually really well because Jesus knew that he was about to go and be betrayed. He knew that he was about to go and be crucified. Everything that was happening, Jesus already knew and was happening according to plan. And so who is this random person and why are they included? Now, other commentators will say, you know, actually, Jesus just prearranged this thing. He, you know, you don't just waltz into Jerusalem on Passover and expect to get a dinner table that night, you know, akin to Dallas. You don't just go on Saturday night and step into Mi Casino and expect to be seated. You don't do that. That's not the way this works. You have to make a plan. And either way, we're struck by how Jesus knows this person, but it's remarkable for the very reason that he's even mentioned in this story. That the anonymous, faceless person who doesn't even have a name is included to be a part of this is incredible. And I'm not sure which is the bigger miracle, the fact that Jesus supernaturally knew what this guy was going to be doing or the fact that Jesus would take time out of his precious few days of his life left to go and speak to a stranger and to let him in on the big secret. What's the secret? My time is at hand. It's about to happen. For any and all of you who feel like you're on the fringes and margins of this story of this Christian week, this holy week, I think that this man is here to show us that Jesus knows and is a part of and inviting him to this table just as much as he's inviting his 12 disciples and Judas. Now, his disciples, of course, they knew that when Jesus commanded something obscure that they were just going to go and do it. They had been burned enough times. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 people and when Jesus went up and told them, okay, we're going to feed all these people, their immediate response was, well, how is that supposed to happen? There isn't enough money. How can we feed 15,000 people? And Jesus just breaks the bread and they just pass it out and it just happens. And you see this repeated theme over and over again with the disciples. And so by this point, this verse is remarkable saying that the disciples just obeyed and did it because you see that the disciples just had this childlike faith. Jesus commanded it and they did it. So they go and prepare it and they're sitting down and this is in the main part two. This is our conversation topic and it's over betrayal. And Jesus immediately goes to them and says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you. And it says that they immediately became very sorrowful. Matthew, the text, we don't do justice to this text because it's a visceral, guttural reaction of complete disbelief. How on earth is it that one of us would betray you? We are literally going to the Passover. We are your most faithful. It was beyond comprehension that any person in that room would betray them. Now, you and I as readers, of course, know just before this text, Judas had agreed to betray Jesus. He had gotten 30 shekels of silver. He was looking for the opportunity, and Jesus knew that. But they didn't. 
And so when you look at the text, it's remarkable. Verse 22, it says, they were very sorrowful. They began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Now, here's why that's so amazing, is that the disciples, in all of their incomplete knowledge about who Jesus actually was and what he was going to do, actually trusted that Jesus knew them better than they knew themselves. Jesus knew the interior workings of their heart more than they could understand themselves. Augustine has the similar idea several hundred years later, and he says that, Lord, you are closer to me than I am to my very self. And the disciples, for all of their flaws, they knew that Jesus knew them inside and out, and that Jesus was close to them and invested in them. But then there's one who was a little bit skeptical. His name is Judas Iscariot. And we look, actually, and Jesus identifies, woe to this person. I want to read for you this text. He said, the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus knows who's going to betray him. He knows it's Judas. Judas knows that Jesus knows that he's about to betray him. It's a real whodunit. Who knows that who did it? And this is where we run into the great dilemma that you and I face, that I have conversations with all the time, and that is this. How is it possible, how is it possible that God could have a plan, as it is written, someone is going to betray him, and God hold responsible the one who's going to do the betraying? This is the great mystery and dilemma of the Christian life. And I will confess, this is a stumbling block for me. This is a stumbling block for many of you. How is it that there could be this plan that's happened that God is completely in control and at the same time God holds responsible those who betray him? And I remember when I was wrestling with this question, I was in seminary, I went up to, um, I won't say his name, but he's this Scottish theologian who has written about 50 books in our bookstore. And he, I more or less presented the same question to him in, in his kind and gentle and Scottish brogue um, pastoral way, he offered up um, a thought that came from Romans 9, and that was this, it's, it's, who are you, O oh man, to talk to God? What right does the clay have to speak to the potter? And I think what we see in this text is that Judas had forgotten who he was, and he thought that he could look God in the eye and tell him that he knew better. Jesus, you're not who you say you are. You are a fraud. You're a phony. I've found you out. You're not bringing in the kingdom. And I'm going to get my money out of this. In a way, it takes us all the, way, all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? With Adam and Eve. God, you don't know. I know better than you. And we know this is the case. Because every single disciple, when they go and ask Jesus, they say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then Judas, it's very interesting, is it I, Rabbi? Judas had stopped believing. He had already taken Jesus off of his throne. And Jesus, what would have been appropriate would have been the smackdown, the woe to you. But instead he turns his cheek and then he addresses his disciples all together and they have a meal and that leads us to part three.
and he's going to reconstitute the Passover. And he tells them that he takes bread and he blesses it and breaks it and he gives it to his disciples. It says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to him and said, drink of it all of you for this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to consider the possibility that if Jesus knows what he's doing and that he's about to lay out his life and he's completely in control, if he knows the anonymous face this certain man in the crowd, if he knows the hearts of his disciples better than he knows, better than they know themselves, if he knows who's going to betray him, if he knows how to solve the ultimate riddle of how God can be in control and hold us responsible, can it also be that God knows what we need? And I need it, you need it, the disciples need to be washed and forgiven. We need to be brought closer to Jesus. And we need to be brought closer to Jesus through Jesus not acting in conquest, but through laying down his life and saying, this is my body broken for you. The great answer to your and my problems is not that we would have more knowledge. It's that we would have more Jesus. And that you and I could receive the body and blood broken for forgiveness of sins and that we would get a promise. It's a promise. This is our thing. This is what we cling everything to, is that Jesus knows me. Jesus loves me. Jesus gave for me that which I could not give for myself, and that is his perfect life given to me. Every time we come to the table, that's what we receive. He knows better. He's a good father who sent his son to give us exactly what we need, and that is forgiveness and new life. And so if he knows us, if he gives us what we need, could he not also know what our hope ought to be? Where do we look to the future? I'll tell you, I'm not going to drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is also telling him, I know what's going to happen. And what's going to happen today is eventually going to turn into a heavenly feast, a heavenly meal, and everybody's going to be invited it's really funny, when you look back in Matthew 8, Jesus says, he's talking uh, to a centurion, and he says that at the heavenly feast, the Messianic feast, people are going to gather from north, south, east, and west with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're all going to sit at my table. That's what's going to happen. Jesus knows the future. So I'll say it again. If he knows the anonymous face, if he knows our desperately wicked and sinful hearts, if he knows how to redeem us and he knows where we're going, why would you not want to know him? Because he already knows you.